Hello, my name is Ryan Broderick, and I am no longer in a cupboard. I am still in Brazil, but I have figured out a way to sit at a desk like a person. I am Luke Bailey, and I am also sitting at a desk like a person. And I always, I always was, and I always will be. What kind of desk? I, what, what kind of desk? Uh, a really cheap one that I bought right at the start of the first lockdown, which means that it's got like a, a corner thing. I'm going to spin the computer around so you can see. It's got this like weird, like lump sticking oh, up on one side. That is strange. And it's not quite as it's not quite as deep as I want. So I feel like I'm constantly like hunched over a, 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 like a like a Victorian writing table. It's not ideal. I mean, this might surprise our listeners, but that glimpse just then was. The only time I have ever seen the room around you in 29 episodes of this podcast. Have you not been in this house? I have, but I don't know what room you're in. Oh, I'm in the the, the other room. Like, not the living room where you slept, and not the bedroom where we slept. The other room. The other which, room. Which also now has a spare bed in. It didn't when I was there, because I had to sleep on the couch. It did not. No, it in fact, not. No, actually, no. when I got there... The bed had arrived, but it hadn't been built yet because it came from Ikea. Yes. And then you did briefly ask if I wanted to build my own bed. And I was like, no. Yes. <laughs> I was glad of that. And honestly, uh, it was a really complicated bed and it took me like eight hours and it was great. I really enjoyed it. I, I also love the like the the mental void that I fall into when I build Ikea furniture where it's like I just become one with my with like the universe. Yeah, just, just going and just doing all like putting tab a into slot b and it's just great Speaking of putting tab A into slot B, welcome to the Content Minds, a podcast about content and the various inputs and outputs of information of the internet. Um, this week, we're going to be talking about... Uh, okay, wait. I'm going to give a warning at the top of this episode that this episode is going to be okay. a little inside baseball. I feel like a lot of our episodes, we dance around hardcore media chat without actually getting into hardcore media chat, but I feel like we're going to get into pretty hardcore media chat this week. The problem is, is while we'd love the internet to be a place of a free-for-all where nothing existed and everyone was just like being themselves and having fun, there are two things that stop that happening. The, well, actually three things. There's the platforms, there's the brands, and there's the media. Because the media exists on social media and all these platforms. And yeah, I'm, as a fully paid up member of, of the media... Um, like literally, I have a union card. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, then, yeah, it 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 means that a lot of the way that we see the the internet is through this prism, and occasionally we have to stop and talk about how the way that the media interacts with the internet is important and fucked up. Yeah, uh, that's a very long way of saying we're going to talk about Glenn Greenwald this week. <laughs> uh, unfortunately. Um, we had sort of we sort of touched on it last week, but uh, some things have happened in the last several days. Uh, we last week said that he was trying to act in good faith. I'm going to take that back because he's like gone yep. hardcore turf in the last couple of days, and I want to make it very clear: Content Minds is a no turf space. Turns out, Glenn Greenwald's editorial freedom he was seeking was just saying a bunch of crazy shit about trans people that isn't true. Anyways, I'm getting way ahead of myself. Well, I think that's something unfair. He was saying a lot of crazy shit about a lot of things. That's true. Um he's been he's been having he's been posting through it hardcore this week. Yeah. Um before we get into all of that though, um 
Luke, what's up with that spaghetti bolognese photo that guy tweeted from England? <laughs> oh, this is actually great because this goes very nicely into people posting through it. <laughs> it looked like he was having like a really hard time wrapping his head around the idea that like he had posted disgusting trash food on the internet and people were destroying him over it. Do you know who John Sweeney is? Okay, let's start from the very beginning. Talk to me. How? What? What? What is this? Okay. What are we talking about here? John Sweeney is a long-time uh, BBC reporter, a long-time investigative reporter, who for a very long time was very good. Um, he has had his moments of leaving the mainstream of what's acceptable. Uh, do you recall the video from about ooh, 10 years ago where a guy just a reporter just absolutely screamed at a Scientologist on the street. Yeah, vaguely actually. That was him. Oh, cool. Okay, I'm into that. <laughs> yeah. So so he he yeah, he has this history of getting very very angry with people, but he's also like clearly a very good reporter. Then, oh god, this is one of these things that just it's looping in every bit of British culture. So, like, two years ago, uh, he started investigating Tommy Robinson. Okay, so Tommy Robinson, I think we've talked about on the show, but a really quick one. He's like if Alex Jones was a soccer hooligan, that's, like, as close to a comparison I think you can ac accurately make for Tommy Robinson. Yeah. Uh, so, John Sweeney got sort of rolled by Tommy Robinson. Not quite in the, you know, he, he did... He was trying to do the John Sweeney was trying to do the full investigation, working for Panorama, which is like a uh, British sixty minutes. Okay. Um, yeah, right. He 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 went and talked to him. He he talked to everyone around him, but a lot of the people, you know, we know how this this far right stuff works. A lot of them are kind of tangentially related to each other, like they are having beef between themselves. But then when the mainstream tries to talk to them, they suddenly get back in their box and they're all on the same team again. Yes. And this is what happened. And he kind of got rolled by a couple of like associates of Tommy Robinson. Uh, they arranged like an interview having him done all... John Sweeney having thought he'd done all his reporting. Uh, he then... Tommy Robinson then attempted to make a documentary of John Sweeney as John Sweeney was attempting to make a documentary of Tommy Robinson. Oh, cool. Uh, <laughs> it turned into a whole thing. Uh, he did a big... Tommy Robinson did a big showing of his documentary in the central square of manchester for some reason uh like an outdoor showing of this documentary which i'm trying to remember what it was called it was like bbc truth or whatever something like that uh and then the john sweeney version half of it never came out uh oh. and over the course of like, the next year eventually he left the bbc oh wow okay it's i didn't unknown. know any of this. it's no it's unknown whether it was linked and i've i've not seen good reporting on how it was or how it wasn't linked there is also reasonably good quality reporting that there were some problematic moments while he was there, he left the BBC after an HR complaint was made against him, according to other people's reporting. And that complaint was from a young journalist, and I'm not going to go any further than that. But, so, he then left, he turned into a, a poster. He actually took the exact same route as Glenn, Glenn, Glenn Greenwald. Just oh, interesting. Accidentally. Uh, left, the, left the BBC, got very angry. He went to a bunch of different places. He started making a lot of videos where he would like film himself on his phone while he was drinking wine and explaining why someone was corrupt or something, which, you know, is, is a great vibe. I mean, I'll be honest. I know the urge of filming yourself ranting as an out of work journalist. I feel like yep. I understand that mechanism now more than I used to. And I have <laughs> fought that urge as hard as possible. And I like to think that this podcast almost works as sort of like a, an outlet for those self-destructive tendencies that you get when it's you are... It's a pressure release valve. <laughs> anyway, the problem was he didn't have a podcast. See, this is it. Uh, More men need to start into, podcasts so they this. don't flame out on Twitter. 
<laughs> he got into this. He flamed out. He got very angry. But a lot of people like were like, yeah, isn't he standing up to the man? And everyone was kind of like, hey, no, actually, he left the BBC for reasons that are not that great. Uh, and it's more complicated than that. And then his final crime was making a bolognese. That was extremely bad. Okay, so I have the, I have the tweet in front of me. He wrote. I love also that you, you came with this being like, oh, this, this guy made a bolognese. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> right. I mean, so, okay. He wrote spag bowl, which is British slang for spaghetti bolognese, uh, which is what Americans would just call spaghetti with meat sauce. Spag bowl, properly done, no carrot, lots of Italian red, which I assume refers to the glass of wine in the photograph next to his spag bowl. And then he finishes That's true, the because you should, you should only put white wine in a, in a bolognese. Is that true? Yeah. Oh, well, then he says, thank you. Okay, so the, the picture is horrifying. Like, it's really bad. It's disgusting. Um, the onions are uncooked and basically just like cut in half. Like they're, nothing's chopped up. Like the meat is just like wet and like brown, but also uncooked somehow. There's far too much broth in it. There's so much broth. Like I don't understand – Like. And, and he, you're probably going to talk more about this after me here, but he gets in the in the mentions, the replies of the tweet, and he's defending this by saying it isn't cooked yet. But I can't imagine how this becomes food. Like I, looking at this photograph, it looks like a nightmare that you'd play in like a Japanese survival video game from the mid '90s, like 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 Silent Hill. Like it, it looks like. Something you would have a panic attack over when you took too many mushrooms. I've been playing Assassin's Creed Valhalla, and it looks like a stew that you would walk into someone's house and find. Yes, it, it, in. it looks like you had to create the idea of what spaghetti bolognese looks like from memory. And an AI, like, it looks like a deep fake of spaghetti bolognese. It looks like a computer tried to render spaghetti. That's what this looks like. Also, he opens it by saying no carrot or celery. Right, which is like a com. That's a common thing that you guys fight about, isn't it? Like putting carrots no, in your spag bowl. It, like, spaghetti bolognese is carrot, celery, and onion diced very finely, <laughs> cook them slowly until they're translucent. Add garlic, <laughs> add meat, add white wine, add tomato passata, add some herbs. I love, uh, and then cook it slowly, and then a little bit of milk, and then you're good. I love how much you guys fight about disgusting, pointless food. I'm sorry, but that's no, that's the correct way. This is not a fight. That is the correct way to cook it. <laughs> I've been thinking a lot about like trying to figure out how to describe like British food fights because they're very different than American food fights. I think. Well, I think this is a European food fight. But but here here's my tell me tell me what you think about this hot take here. I feel like America lives in a post food world, so food can be anything. We can make food out of anything with anything. There's really no. There's really no way to freak people out. Like last time I was in San Francisco, there was a line around the block for a sushi rito, you know, which is just a sushi roll as a burrito. And no one's no one's batting an eyelash about that. Meanwhile, for the record, for the record, when you tripped cook meat in Dr. Pepper when we were living together, I found that objectionable. Okay, I made a pork shoulder in Dr. Pepper. It's a very old family recipe. It's very easy to make. You just slow cook a pork shoulder in Dr. Pepper or Coca-Cola with some cinnamon, some cayenne pepper, and some onions, and it tastes delicious. It's a very, very common American recipe. This is what I'm saying. I feel like I feel like this has to do with the British class system and the and the rigid structures of your society. You can't think beyond what food is or isn't, and it's driving you all insane. Much of this stuff, yes, but this is a bad bolognese. It's this is wrong. a bad bolognese. I will agree. This is yeah. this is a, this is an unconscionable bolognese. I I I'm offended looking at it. Good, right? <laughs> I'm glad we agree. Uh, yeah. You should definitely try the Dr Pepper pork shoulder though. It's really nice. 
No. <laughs> I, I tried your I tried your cornbread, and for some reason you put cake and gravy together. I don't understand any of this. For listeners uh, who don't understand what we're talking about here, my mom is from Oklahoma. When I was living in the UK, usually once or twice a year, she would send me a care package of food that you can't easily get in the UK. One of them was j- boxes of Jiffy cornbread, because I really enjoy cornbread. Cornbread is a very useful thing for soaking up barbecue juices, and it's usually sweet to offset the salty, savory combination that's happening with american barbecue that's that's bollocks though because barbecue is pretty sweet barbecue sauce is sweet yeah that's why it works together. it's full of brown sugar so it's just two sweet things together no but it's just american an american inability to give up on sugar i can't remember if i put corn in the cornbread i gave you or not sometimes i do sometimes i don't um but that also adds sort of like a savoriness to it as well all I remember is it was effectively a cake. It's spongy bread that you use to soak up barbecue sauce. It's with. not. It's not. It's not bread. It's sponge. It's sponge cake. <laughs> it's really good. Actually, the most violently ill I've ever been with food poisoning in my entire life was on my birthday. I went to a barbecue restaurant in London and I ate their cornbread. And I remember to this day what it looked like. It looked like a pancake full of jalapenos. And I've never been more like completely out of control, full body sick in my entire life. To be fair, you also ate like nine other barbecue dishes. It was the cornbread. I'm convinced it was the cornbread. It didn't look right. It looked bad. It looked like the spaghetti bolognese. I just wish the mainstream media had enough fucking balls to talk about cornbread, but they're all <laughs> they're all those fat cat editors. All right, let's get into it. Let's talk about Substack and Bad Men. <laughs> I feel like we needed a, 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 a like a music hit then. Oh no, there will be a music hit there. Oh great! Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I do that in post. Okay. Um, all right. So this week we're talking about newsletters, I guess. But I think we're also going to be talking about the way the topography of the internet has changed. We're going to be talking about the weird nervous breakdown that media seems to be having right now. And well, maybe well, well, yeah, I think I think the context of this is that we are at the end of a four year cycle. And yes. Sadly, we are all tied into. America, whatever America's mood is for some terrible reason, which means that, you know, you've been through an election. Uh, historically, that was when everyone like realigns and spends the next two years figuring out where they want to work in order to get into the next presidential cycle. That's kind of how it works. But now, like, because algorithms and platforms are moving so fast, everyone just rearranges up every four years. So that's just, I think that's just going to be happening for the future now. So yeah, we're at the end of a four year cycle. Let's rearrange media and see who survives. <laughs> Right. And this is also sort of tying into another trend that I thought had maybe been over, but I guess it it is just sort of changing shape in a way where I wasn't recognizing it, which is the kind of influence of Silicon Valley innovation on media. And that has resulted in the newest hot thing, which is Substack. Uh, If you're not familiar, I use uh, and I I actually guarantee you that like a lot of people probably aren't even sure that they're reading Substack because it's it's a newsletter platform. So if you read my newsletter, Garbage Day, if you read Luke's newsletter about the election... Uh, uh, okay, I had to go for it. I ran out of time. <laughs> <laughs> those are powered by Substack. And Substack is basically the most user-friendly and easy to monetize 
newsletter platform that's out there. Other ones include Tiny Letter, which I think has like a cap at a certain amount of people you can add to it. MailChimp is another one, which if you listen to podcasts other than ours, you've probably heard ads for. Review, I think, is supposed to be good as well. Review is good. Uh, there's like a bunch of them, but Substack is the one that has just made it super easy for anyone and everyone to start a newsletter. I mean, it also effectively operates as a website because like you can go to it and if you have a non-subscriber newsletter or a partially subscriber newsletter, you can go to it and just have all your posts there, which is, that's what a website is. Also, uh, I think it was like a couple weeks ago, I got an email from Substack saying that if I paid like 50 bucks or something as like a one-time fee, I could get a custom domain. So I could have like garbage.day. Um, I was actually looking into buying garbageday.email or like garbage email or something. Um, <laughs> so yeah, you, you can effectively dress up your newsletter like a blog. And then you can use email as a distribution platform. But I feel like we're I feel like we're getting really 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 far ahead here. So let, let's let, let's start at the very beginning. And 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 Luke, when did you start noticing people moving to Substack? Because this um, wasn't this isn't like a new thing. It's been around for a little bit. No, it has been around for a while. I'm trying to remember the first Substack that I noticed. I think it was probably Nicole Cliffs. Oh yeah, okay. Nicole Cliff. Uh, she was involved with uh, an old, really 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 popular blog called The Toast. Yeah. And she was one of the first big writers to move over to Substack. Yeah, and and I noticed that because uh, she was the sort of person who had a very specific, very large following. Right. Uh, and I I, re I remember she got involved in something I was tangentially involved with, like on like some discourse that I was involved in, and she was like, "Oh, that was it. She is extremely obsessed with the British royals." Yes. <laughs> and Americans being obsessed with the British royals is typically a recipe for disaster. Not every time. Yes. But I... typically, it's a recipe for disaster. And they, they, they read an awful lot into bad British tabloids and what they say about the British royals. And they're like, oh, secretly, what they said with this word means that actually this thing's happened. It's like, none of this is true. <laughs> like, so, yeah. Yeah. And she, she got really into that. But she was the sort of person who had a very dedicated, very passionate, very active audience. And she moved over. And um, I, I, this isn't a secret. She's talked about it. But she has, um, she has a very wealthy husband. Like, her husband is a big finance guy. She so she doesn't have to work like that's why the toast worked is that her husband funded it right uh, and it's why but she immediately also she was like oh I'll monetize his audience in in uh, Substack and I actually I believe she actually doesn't take the money from her I believe she donates it um but she does like have this large active audience and she, that's the exact sort of person it's perfect for right and I think that was my first encounter with it the first like really big professional Substack I remember was uh, Judd Langham's popular.info or popular info mm -hmm. which same idea uh judd langham was like a uh, i think he was the founder of think progress um he's been kicking around in sort of like liberal and like progressive blogosphere projects forever and he started this newsletter that he was using to just really aggressively hammer facebook and he was doing some really cool like what i would call internet forensics with it where he was just like digging into crowd tangle digging into the ad library and hammering facebook it felt like every day he was pulling out something just damning um in a way that was like kind of incredible and his use of like the paywall was really interesting because he was toggling it so like really big scoops were free but then he was like if you wanted more context or you wanted other stuff you would go behind a paywall and i found it very very inspiring i thought I also thought like, wow, this guy is like freewheeling like wild right now. And I'm <laughs> nervous every time you publish because you are on your own, bud. Um, but it seems like it's really paid off and I, he didn't flame out. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. No, it, that he definitely had a moment like he was he was getting uh, 
flying close to the sun a few times. But that, I mean, that's exactly it, though. It, it offers a specific sort of journalist that only ex- has existed in the last few years, like a really interesting opportunity, which is the kind of, I can dig into this stuff and and build a story out of this, uh, well, open information. It's open source journalism, essentially. That's true. And I also think it's not an accident that both Nicole Cliff and Jed Lungham, they're people who have been floating around the internet forever, and they really understand how to self-publish, how to self-monetize, how to self-promote. They're sort of the the classic like early 2000s one-man band people. And I think for a lot of the early Substack power users, the people who were like doing really well in during the new newsletter boom, were these kind of people who were like, wait, I don't need to be part of some weird corporate structure. And I think it's also not an accident that this is happening at the exact same time that like digital media institutions are becoming institutions. They're not like the fun, exciting places that you and I were working at five years ago. They're <laughs> they're like yeah they're as stuffy as newspapers basically um they they poached everybody from newspapers and now those people just run digital media companies so all the all the bloggers have to go to substack i i think i think that's what's going on no i think that's what's going on i mean i think i also think there's a really interesting thing that's happening with it which is it's changing the context of how people communicate with writers so I would argue that what's actually happened isn't the rebirth of blogging it is the rebirth of columnists so now I work in I work in a newspaper world now, so I'm a little bit different on this. But you're also British, if if our listeners haven't noticed yet, and the culture of columnists in Britain is unlike anything we have in America. Like the closest we okay, probably have so, is maybe pundits. Okay, but I have to slightly push back on this, which is the you know it is kind of mad that the New York Times writes a editorial saying the view of the New York Times is that Joe Biden should be president. Well, okay. So what I will say is like what's happened with the New York Times and for people who aren't following this stuff, and we we warned you this was going to be pretty inside baseball, yeah, yeah. but that was a, a fairly um, right-wing kind of like fabulist editor named James Bennett doing something I think very British with- well, No, no, no. This isn't this. This isn't this. Oh, you're just talking about the tradition of endorsing presidents? I'm talking about the tradition of endorsing presidents, oh. but also the tradition of having like many opinion writers who just exist and they have their bylines and their photos on the homepage and you go to them and here's what Ross Douthat says. And Ross Douthat has has no constituency. There is no one who thinks the same things that Ross Douthat's thinks. <laughs> that's I mean, that's that is true. I mean growing up there were it's funny. Growing up, the only people in the newspaper whose names I knew were like movie critics, and like my deep hatred of the Boston Globe's movie critic, who I sure. can't even remember the name of now. Um, but I, I don't. When I got to the UK, I was very surprised at the social capital given to columnists in a way that I don't think we we were doing in America until maybe the Trump era. That's true, but that's also partly because the social capital of capital of british columnists because they write more like they're around a lot and they're a little bit more argumentative because it's the same thing of american tv is british newspapers and british newspapers are american tv yes as in your tv is super like uh exciting and and overwrought uh as our, our tabloid newspapers are and they're all over the place whereas our tv is very serious and everything there's got to be accurate while your newspapers are like we are the single source of truth in a doubtful world yeah i mean your news tv has the production value of like a security camera in a public library (laughs) (laughs) it's just like a very damp old man talking very very slowly in like 
a very, very gray room. Also, I was shocked when I started doing TV hits in Britain and they wouldn't do makeup for me. So sure. in America, like they coat they coat you with makeup to the point where like I was doing uh, a lot of hits in a row for a while and I was getting like bad acne because the makeup was just like compounding. and I looked fucking insane. <laughs> and then I got to the UK and I, I did no makeup. I was like, oh, that's great. I have no makeup. And then I watched it later and I was like, I look like I died. I look like I'm dead. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So so here's my thinking. Here, here, okay. Here's my here's my, my grand theory. My grand okay. theory of the episode. Give it to me. My grand theory of the episode is okay, why do you think that people would read columnists? So, so okay. regular people are in the paper once a week, twice a week. Like why why do you pick up a paper to read that person? There are two British columnists that I actually like quite a bit. I only remember one of their names. So you're gonna have to cool. help me with the other. I think Owen Jones is like a force. I think I think he is a very, very interesting figure. I like what he writes. I think he's a good writer. I think he's like doing a very interesting thing where he's kind of combining left-wing activism with like a cool online presence and like an offline activist presence. And I think it's all very interesting. I don't agree with 100% of what he does or says, but I think he's interesting and I follow what he does and 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 he's he's kind of a cool presence. Okay. Then there's this woman and I can't remember her name, but she does like scathing takedowns of like the news of the week. Marina Hyde. Marina Hyde. She's also like I've read a few of her pieces where I went like, oh, like out loud. Like I have exclaimed audibly reading some of the ways that she's digesting the news and sort of like creating this like this thing that we actually don't really have in America anymore because of the Internet, which is sort of this like mono story of the of the events of the country. And we don't really. John Stewart was probably the last person in America to be able to do that, to synthesize the that mono story. Marina Hyde to me is doing the exact same thing. And I think it's like. When she's good, it's like, wow, that was fucking great. And then you've got okay. the guy once a year, Charlie Brooker, who who's on TV and he does the <laughs> he does the yearly recap, which is like yep. the, the uh, for Americans, the Black Mirror guy does a, a yearly recap uh, TV special that is he, he sits on his sofa and complains about everything you see on TV that year. It's but it's like really good, like it's really yeah. well done. Um, so I would I would say those two and and Charlie Brooker. Okay, so that's a good that's that those. They're interesting examples because what you are experiencing from that as an internet person is that you are reading them because you are interested in what they have to say. However, the reason that people actually are interesting columnists or historically were interesting columnists before the internet was that they helped them calibrate their own views. This is the really interesting part of this. I see. Which is you read the person. So if you're reading your right-wing newspaper they're probably gonna have someone who's pretty extremely libertarian and then someone who's sort of center-right and thinks that you know actually everyone should be equal but you know just not economically right um so you're going to read both of those so if you intuitively hear about the news and you say i think this news is uh, this new policy is great and we should do more of it and then you read your very right-wing guy who hates it and your center-right guy who likes it and you're like hmm i usually agree more with the right-wing guy it recalibrates how you look at things that's what people use them for they don't agree with them but they understand where their views fit based on the sorts of people that they're familiar with and they read a lot of their writing where they fit so you're kind of saying you're kind of saying that like uk columnists operate like an overton window politically for the country yeah but they they also operate as a personal overton window so they might people might say okay i always agree with this person and i never agree with this person so if they suddenly have an opinion on a thing and they 
disagree they, they're the wrong way around they're like hmm i'm gonna reconsider my view like that's that's kind of how it works or similarly if they're always in between and they suddenly find themselves like to the left of them both or to the right of them both they're like oh i think i might be in the wrong place here and they use it as a calibration thing it's not like they don't read it to agree or simultaneously like many people read a paper and be like i hate this columnist i disagree with everything they say so they read it and go like, yes i'm still on the right side because i disagree with this person I it's see. not that they like so it's a calibration and i think that it's same is also true in the u.s like like that's why, particularly on local papers or, or more regional papers, people will read them and have those, you know, the lighter side of life, all that sort of nonsense. Like they will read the same thing. Yes, we actually in America, we do have a grand tradition of sort of like the local town or the local state, like old man who like synthesizes whatever is going on. And exactly. And a lot of that is also tied to sports here. Like you'll have like the columnist who writes mainly about sports and then he like you know, throws off the gloves one week and, like, goes in on something big, you know? And I think that is definitely true. I think that tradition is dying out, but I think that is still true. It's not dying out because it's moved to Substack. All right, we're back, we're back in the game. We're back we're looping in the game. It back, okay. Looping it back. Okay, yeah. So this is what it is. Now people are, are subscribing to their fav- fav- favorite journalists because they want to know what they think about things, not necessarily because they agree. They're, the ones who, to be fair, are, are subscribing probably are more in the in the agreement side but people are subscribing to them because they're now getting it post algorithmically post curation they're just getting it straight fed into them and they are able to hear what the person whose views they respect don't respect but they know where they stand in relation to them is just coming straight to them i think that's i think that's true but i do think we need to talk about sort of like the rebirth of blogging side of it because i do think there is this thing where, for young listeners who don't remember this, uh, blogs, blogs. <laughs> blogs used to exist, and blogs used to work with a thing called RSS, which is actually what podcasts run on now. And people would have readers for RSS. I had Google Reader. I loved it dearly. I pay a monthly fee for Feedly currently because I love RSS so much still. And you would get all your favorite blogs sent to your reader app, and then you would read articles and then eventually there'd be no more articles for the day and you'd be done. Um, I suspect that there's a generation of people who, when we lost that culturally and we went to Facebook where new and Twitter where news is just happening constantly and it's sort of a free-for-all, um, one uh, digital media founder called it the cafe model of publishing where you would go into the cafe <laughs> and grab a coffee and then a scone and a sandwich well it turns out that turns into a neo-nazi so people don't like that very much anymore basically what's happening is you're walking in you're asking for a coffee and then like 18 different people are throwing scones at you yeah yeah it's it's like and you're you... like oh i i sure i would have had a scone but now I, everything's on fire and yeah. right you're being shotgun blasted uh scones that you don't <laughs> yeah, want yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. so I think a lot of people who, especially, you know, people in their late 20s, early 30s who have a little bit of money to spend on media they like, who are also trained to subscribe to stuff based on Netflix and, and various like video game services and stuff. They're not they're not <laughs> anemic to that. They're like, oh, I would gladly pay, you know, five bucks a month to not have to look at facebook videos by the way check out our episode about facebook videos which was from two weeks ago i think (laughs) three weeks ago you'll really like it um so i I do think that's happening and i think that like there is a a kind of move towards a news feed that no one is in control of and it exists in your inbox because everybody already has email and it's just the easiest way to do it 
That's true. I mean, for a long time, um, I use it slightly less now, just because of, of, of uh, various reasons, actually. But it's interesting to figure out why. But uh, for a long time, Pocket was my favorite. I love Pocket. I still love Pocket. Yeah. I still use it, just not as much. But, yeah. you know, there was there was a few years when I, I'd stop and it would be like, hey, you've read like 85 books or something ridiculous. Like It was uh, insane. Because like. it also had the recommendation feed like Spotify. So you'd read a story and then it would recommend you similar stories. Yeah, it was and great. it was really good because you'd just be like, hey, here's a bunch of long reads about things I want to know about, all this sort of stuff. And, and and that, to me, was kind of a similar thing, which was like you were creating your own non-algorithmic thing. However, you had to create it basically off random things on the internet and then its own algorithm recommendation. Whereas the, the newsletter thing is the version parser. It's just like, hey, here are a dozen people that I like what they say on the internet, and I'm just going to get that stuff when they publish it. I think it makes sense, and it and it, it reminds me also of a joke I used to make when I was like when I would talk to colleges, like I would go to like college classes for journalism, and I'd talk to them about stuff. And sure. I used to make this joke in like, gosh, probably twenty twelve, twenty thirteen, where I was like, the future of journalism is writing stories within the Kim Kardashian mobile game. And then I would update the joke to be like, the future of media is newspapers inside of Fortnite. But I actually think that reflects a reality, which is that like. Everyone has an email. Everyone has an email app. So journalists just went to where people are, which is email. I don't think it has anything to do with, like, the sanctity of email distribution. I think it's just, like, you already fucking had the app, so who cares? Like, hi, what's up? I'm a journalist. Also, I hate all of my social feeds. I hate them. I hate them. I hate Facebook. I hate Twitter. I don't use Instagram anymore. Like, all of my all of my social feeds are a nightmare, and to get anything i want to watch i have to see so much garbage i don't want uh that you know obviously on twitter i want to because you know i, I you know i live in the garbage yada 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 but yeah, yeah. i have brain worms uh, I'm, uh, yeah. I'm extremely online uh. <laughs> <laughs> but facebook facebook's just awful uh so it's like i don't know how i get things now but the idea that like yeah i can get a bunch of stuff sent to me and i'm not going to have it turned around by the Facebook algorithm that's going to explain to me, actually, I want to watch this video of a person building an outdoor sink instead. It's like, good. I agree. Although the video where the guy built the outdoor sink, I thought was fascinating. Like, there's some really interesting things. Yeah, I mean, I, I watched uh, a 45-minute video today of a toilet flushing various objects, and I was like, oh, that's pretty interesting. <laughs> um, I was like, big mood, same. Um, <laughs> so it is interesting, though, before we, we move too far past it, is that, so when I was trying to, like, think of how I would do a newsletter way back, like a year and a half ago. My main inspiration was a British newsletter, which has been running forever, called Pop Bitch. Yeah. And for Americans who don't know about it, Pop Bitch is like a deliciously gossipy British newsletter that kind of, it's a little bigger than Today in Tabs was, but there was a newsletter for New York media people called Today in Tabs that was very popular like five years ago. And when it would drop, like everyone would get quiet in your newsroom and they would read it. And then they would all talk about it at the bar that night. And I feel like Pop Bitch still has that kind of vibe where like when it drops, like people do talk about it. And it is like a thing that everyone kind of, like private eye, like everyone gathers around this thing. I mean, by talk, you mean tweet, but yes. Yes. <laughs> and And I feel like it's nice that American media is actually going towards that that shared experience instead of having like a million websites all writing the same story, but in different ways and like regurgitating stuff, we're kind of moving towards an older model that I think is actually more healthy for people, which is like, everyone's going to read the newest, whatever. And we're all going to like talk about it in a way that we had. I don't think America's had that for a long time. 
Yeah, uh, that's true. Like, but uh, yeah, I think this stuff is good. I I also think that there won't be the big central. Uh, how do I put it? Like, there won't be the big central um, newsletter that defines this thing. Whereas, oh, it's the big drop of this newsletter. But I think there's just going to be a lot more of them, and I think that's probably good. That's true. And I think before we get to the next part here, I want to say that the reason you are aware of newsletters, you listening to this, are aware of newsletters right now, and the reason why Substack is so popular right now is largely thanks to people of color, women, and queer people who are some of the first people to start using Substack. It blew up. It created a new discussion over newsletters. And also women, people of color, and queer people have been using news newsletters pretty much unabated since they were invented. Like fandom spaces also like these parts of the internet didn't go away just because like white guys in media decided the newsletters weren't useful anymore which brings me to the next part of our episode let's talk about the white guys in media i mean part of this is is where you want to defend a medium because it is not the fault of the medium that has immediately been taken over by white guys in media, um, much like podcasts. Although, obviously, all the best podcasts are run by white guys in media. So, Of course. <laughs> um, but equally, it is this thing of whenever a new thing happens, it very quickly becomes the home and host of white guys in media. The problem with that is that it's because the last thing was the home and host, the white guys in media, and the white guys <laughs> in media take the opportunity once it is big enough. And the, the people who are not white guys in media build it up, get it to the point where the white guys in media can take over. And that's effectively what happens every time. And I don't know that there is a way around that. Oh, interesting. I have a totally different take on this. Really? Okay. Yeah. Okay. So to finish my take, my central yeah. take is that this thing happens every single time. It is cyclical. Uh, it is easy to move your following as a white guy in media, which is big and expensive or whatever, uh, straight over onto the new platform because you have your following and you immediately jump up the charts on it. It's, you know, it's the same mechanic as, you know, if you become a big TikTok star and then say, hey, I'm now on YouTube, you immediately get a big following on YouTube. And you don't really have to try for it because you've already got the TikTok following. And it's that same thing of having this deep, long-term internet following that you transfer over. And I, I increasingly think I don't understand what the way is around that. Because if you're a platform, you want people with big followings. Those people with big followings tend to be white guys in media. Therefore, you're, you're, you're locked in. And it's, this, it's, this, it's a really unpleasant cyclical thing that... Each new generation is now entirely informed by the previous generation, which goes back to white guys and media. So I, I'm not going to say that that's not true, but I will say this. The first person that I was aware was making six figures on Substack was Nicole Cliff. I had heard that number, I think, last year, and that made me go like, whoa. And I think one of the biggest subscribed newsletters right now is Heated which is by Emily Atkin. It's a climate change newsletter. It's very good. I recommend it. And there were, and one of the other biggest newsletters is uh, Sinocism by Bill Bishop, which is about China. It is a very dense newsletter, but I highly recommend it if you want to understand China. Bill Bishop is also uh, one of the angel investors for Substack now because he was like basically the first person they brought over. Yeah. 
Substack was doing huge amounts of traffic and huge amounts of money before the white guys in media of the last two months joined. But no one talked about it, which I think is the problem for me here, which is that it wasn't news when people of color and women were building gigantic audiences on newsletters. It became news to other white guys in media when other white guys in media decided that they wanted to come on and join the party. And it made things even worse because people like Maddie Iglesias and Glenn Greenwald decided that they were going to make a substack in some sort of protest of some imaginary, like, woke SJW authoritarianism in the media, which doesn't do fucking I don't, exist. I don't think Maddie Iglesias was doing that. He just wanted to be a blogger and thought he could make more money there. Uh, yeah, in fact, I'm actually not even sure if that was his spin or somebody else's spin on him, but uh, there were tons of tweets being like, Matty Iglesias can't even survive the woke left of Vox or whatever the fuck. Yeah. But that's when the news pieces started. That's when the trend pieces started. And I think that's like really stupid and crazy because like, all right, so in my own experience, and I'm aware that I'm a white guy in media, I'm not like completely insane, but Garbage Day, are, to be clear. yeah, Garbage Day, I, I've been running it now for a year and a half. Um, I was inspired to start Substack by a uh, another writer named uh, Delia Sai, who writes D's Links. I highly recommend that as well. Um, but like Substack was big and people were excited about it. And like there was lots of stuff happening there. It didn't become like a media trend story until like three white guys with like 200,000 Twitter followers decided to join. And I think that's a problem. It's not white guys are always going to ex- like um, Columbus shit. They're always going to Columbus shit. Well, yeah, no, but um, like, you know, like stuffy media dudes are always going to like fill up any empty space to bloviate whatever the fuck they feel like. Right. But we don't have to make it news. Like no one has to write about Maddie Iglesias leaving Vox if they don't want to. No one's holding you at gunpoint to be like, what's Glenn Greenwald doing right now? Like, right. But 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 this is goes back to my original point, which is that the the reason this becomes news is that the people existing who would make news by moving over to it are all white guys. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's it, right? Like you, like it's, it, Andrew Sullivan moved over as well, and that, that was the news. one I was thinking of. Andrew Sullivan, I forgot about him. Yeah, he loves race science. Cool guy. Like this is this is the problem though. Is that like, like it doesn't like, have to be news? Who would you think of as like the prominent female columnist who was like, I'm going to start a substack deck. The the prominent female reporter who would do it, and there's not many. Like, it, mm. it, 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 I don't know. Uh, probably Taylor Lorenz would be. Um, yeah. Uh, Kairos, Maggie Haberman. That would yeah. be great fun. <laughs> um, like there are right, reporters who do it, but they tend to be not bloggers because the people who succeeded when they were bloggers were white guys. Like True. the the class of people who would go back to it are the class of people who can jump between things much easier because they are white guys. Like it. it, it it's a self-fulfilling prophecy that I really dislike. Because, oh, I see what you're saying. Okay, I understand. That, yeah. So yeah, okay, we're, we're kind of saying the same thing here. And that is true. And, but but it's also not true at the same time because there were a ton of people from outside the traditional idea of, you know, a media person that became very successful during the blogging age that I think are going back to newsletters. But yes, you're right. There is this sort of like establishment within these structures that says like okay like there's like 15 white guys and if they do anything per in their in their lives we have, we're going to write it up like it's national news yeah i mean the decision about whether or not to write up that someone's on Substack is a slightly different thing <laughs> um but yeah i think there's a problem with with this but it's always gonna be the same problem which is that 
you either need to ban people who are established from going to a platform, which wouldn't be a terrible thing to do. That'd be interesting. Or, yeah, it'd be interesting. Or you kind of say, hey, we have a platform, but you know, the fact that Maria Iglesias is on a platform is probably eventually going to trickle down into more money for smaller careers on that platform. Like, that is helpful. Like, it is helpful to make the platform bigger. It is helpful to build up the idea that people are going to subscribe to newsletters and get more newsletters and pay for them. So, like, okay. if, if, if Maria Iglesias brings in 10,000 people going to pay for his and 10% of those also go on to subscribe to another new newsletter somewhere, that's great. That's good for those other smaller creators. So, okay, uh, I think this is a, an important point of the show to kind of talk about the back end of Substack because I do think there's some serious misunderstandings of what this is as a platform. So you know this because you've used it, but Substack isn't like Twitter. It's not like Facebook. If you have an account there, you're not going to really experience anything else if you don't seek it out. There is a homepage that shows like the top freed publications and the top paid publications and things like that. But Chances are there's, I, I like I said this earlier, there's probably a lot of people who are reading Substack newsletters and have no idea that it's being delivered by Substack or care. That's true. That's not, that's not quite what I mean. What I mean is is the idea of building people's familiarity with uh, getting emails and subscribing to emails. Like <laughs> yeah, that, that's yeah. specifically what I mean. Like that's if you, true. If you pay for one email, you're more likely to pay for three or four. You're not just going to be like, well, this is the only email I get. Like, That's true. And I think... I think that yeah, I think that's true, and I th and I think a lot of people probably are reading newsletters and have been for fifteen years and don't even think of them as a as a big deal, you know, like you know, like Target sends newsletters technically, <laughs> like <laughs> that's true, like Chipotle will send you a newsletter, um, and there's lots of people who spend all of their time thinking about email marketing and email delivery, and it's a whole world. Uh, if you're interested in it, I recommend uh, Dan Ozinski. Um, he's he writes a newsletter called Not a Newsletter that is actually just a Google Doc he sends around. Um, <laughs> it's fascinating, and there's a whole science to it. I don't understand most of it. But, okay, well, he, he, here's one for you. And this bothers me a lot, and this isn't just a newsletter thing. And I think this is this is sort of speaks to a larger problem here. And I did tweet about this, so I'm sorry that I'm repeating that for anyone who follows me on Twitter. But Which you should not be doing. Yeah, please don't do that. Um, there is this thing where a bunch of journalists or a bunch of writers or a bunch of creators decide that something is working really well as a way to get content in front of people. So maybe it's live video or maybe it's Instagram stories or maybe it's uh, uh, TikTok videos or Vine or whatever the fuck it is. And a bunch of these people are having really fun doing it and they're making some money and they're getting a lot of attention. And then you have these like fucking khaki pants nerds who show up and they're just like, well, I don't know if it could, you could do a whole newspaper there and I don't see a lot of good reporting being done. And it's like, shut the <laughs> fuck up. What? <laughs> like, shut up. Like, no one, no one is like banging on the table being like, where is the original investigative reporting happening on Vine? It's like, shut up. Like, what the fuck is wrong with you? Um, and, and I just don't get that reaction. I don't get why every new thing suddenly has to be some savior for an industry that it isn't related to like no no one no one wants no one at twitch is like how do we fix american media it's not twitch's responsibility it's people who work in american media's responsibility to fix it i mean i think i agree but also what if the fascists find out about it? <laughs> <laughs> yes, and I agree. I mean, I should point out here that the the most subscribed publication on Substack currently is the Dispatch, which is a center right um, 
blogging collective, essentially. Um, so you know, <laughs> you know, Tommy Robinson has an e- has a newsletter. Does he? Yeah. Do you read it? Is it any good? Uh, I assume I signed up for one of my accounts when I was monitoring. I don't really do that anymore, so I haven't. I have not seen it in a while. It's possible it stopped, but for a while he had a newsletter. I but mean, like this is this is kind of my point. Like it, 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 whenever you figure something out like this, if you are a broadly down the line person who isn't saying anything too exciting or, or normal, but agrees with eighty percent of the country, that eighty percent of the country is probably not going to pay you any money for it. If you're on one of the ten percent on the fringes, on the extreme sides, you're going to get a lot more people paying you money for it, and therefore it very rapidly becomes extreme. Like this is the thing that stresses me out is with all this stuff. It's like okay, and what about when the the Nazis find it. Yeah, but like how many how many Nazis could be supported by a load of Nazi adjacent supporters paying five pound five bucks a month? Well, I mean, the okay. So the Daily Stormer is uh is was I I actually don't even know the status of the Daily Stormer anymore, but it was that it was it was it was supported uh, by people and it got knocked down off of every platform that was hosting anything to do with it and it eventually it could no longer make any money guidelines and they so far don't appear to have a nazi problem doesn't mean there won't but it also doesn't mean that like we have to live our lives being held hostage by the eventuality that like a bunch of shitheads are going to use it to be nazis like i don't know i don't i don't really buy into that like i mean i want to be i want to be clear like i do think that it is broadly a good thing and like I think a lot of things that happen aren't good and I have subscribed to a bunch of users that I think are really good fun. I also think that with all this stuff, at a certain point, Substack are going to be forced to make a call and kick someone off the platform or not kick someone off the platform. And that's going to be a delineation. And I mean, this comes back to the columnist thing, which I, which I find interesting. So one of the things I do think is going to be really interesting about Substack and really helpful about Substack is that it doesn't, exist outside like each thing on it is independent right it's so it's like an island of content every time yeah there's a guy who works in the uk i'm not going to say his name because i feel mean because i already got blocked for harassing him once but uh, (laughs) (laughs) this guy works for for the times uh he is a he's the books editor he reviews a lot of books and art shows that's like his thing and then occasionally he'll write a, a column Back in April of this year, he wrote a column that was, uh, if you don't know in the in, in the US, the Times like a right wing newspaper. It's not like not crazy right wing. God with about trans people, it's also a British newspaper, you know. No, but the London Times is like the center of like the turf world right now. Sure, but but it's 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 the rest of its politics are pretty much just normal right wing politics. Uh, and yeah, this guy writes a thing in April about how there was this new force in American politics that everyone should be worried about and that was the dirtbag left. Uh, April this year. Uh-huh. And obviously, like, everyone was like, what the hell are you doing? You, you dumbass. And, and, you know, trolled him pretty hard over right. this thing. And to a certain extent, it's like, yeah, no, you you should get trolled for that. That was the dumbest he'll take. On the other hand, it's like, I don't know, man. It's the guy who reads books. Like, that's his thing. He's a He's reviewing books. I don't care about it but because it's on the internet it becomes everything becomes a statement of values of the 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 thing that you're looking at itself like like you are saying i can't believe the times published this oh i see what you're saying whereas if it comes substack it's a this person published it's like okay yeah don't have a problem i think this guy's takes bad but who cares like 
I mean, to circle it back around to Glenn Greenwald, um, you know, he debuted his newsletter this week after making a big fucking stink on Twitter that he wanted editorial freedom. And it turned into just like a, a, a weird piece about trans panic. And a bunch of people tried to get really outraged about it on Twitter. And, you know, obviously, I think the entire myth of like, you know, children mutilating themselves because of peer pressure is like a disgusting piece of like turf propaganda. But at the same time, I was kind of like, I mean, he's doing his weird, stupid thing over in his clubhouse. It's the same way I feel about Parler, where it's like, oh, you want to, like, sit on Parler and talk about murdering liberals? Like, okay, well, eventually the FBI is going to get involved if you get too violent. But, like, I don't have to fucking see it or deal with it. So, like, have fun, you fucking freaks. Like, whatever. What's happened here, I've totally taught myself around the other direction. I think this is good. Because the problem with the social media bubble, the filter bubble, isn't that you only hear your own views it's that your views are always set up in opposition to everyone else's because everything's open on the internet so you you put your thing out there and then everyone who hates you yells at you or right. you yell at them or whatever it is and then the next one you go it's like i can't believe everyone yelled at me over this thing and then they yell at you again and it's it's just a permanently oppositional whereas if you're like hey because this guy who's writing about dirtbag left readers the times know who the fuck the dirtbag left is that's fine why would they like no no one who reads the times also listens to listens to chapo trap house right so the I, idea oh, by the way if you listen to chapo trap house and read the london times please message us we'd love to talk to you <laughs> exactly so so if you're a times reader you read that and that is correct for you in that you're like hmm this is an interesting thing i hadn't heard about it doesn't matter that it's not you to the internet because you're a times reader why would you be reading other things on the internet look i i, I don't want to stop you but you're very excitedly describing just how like audiences work and i think that's like, right, incredible right, right. <laughs> but, but 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 this is it it is the it is the return to bubbles which used to exist and exist again and they can exist again on Substack because all you see is it coming to your email and you don't you can just read a thing and be like this is interesting i disagree i agree and you don't have to constantly set yourself up in opposition to someone who disagrees with you i so I you know I've been holding off talking too much about garbage day this week, but <laughs> I have like a very good idea of like who the typical garbage day reader is and like what they do and do not know, and a lot of that's because they email me and I talk to them and I've, I'm sort of learning who that person is. What Ryan's saying is like, please email him. Please, I'm so lonely. Um, no, but I do love when they email me and I love when Content Minds listeners message me. But there is there's a kind of person that like reads garbage day and they are vaguely aware of stuff that's going on on the internet, but they probably don't have a ton of time to follow it themselves. They really enjoy explainers of like really niche stuff, stuff that if I were to tweet out either wouldn't fit on Twitter or people who would already know it. Like, cause like Twitter is like full of like power user freaks who like, you know, obsess over everything. Us. And what's also interesting about writing for a newsletter is that it is both referential to the outside world because of the nature of newsletters. Like it's it's kind of like a roundup, you know. You you want to give people value that way, but also it is, as you said, it's a it's it's its own thing. So it has to kind of exist on its own, um, which means you kind of allow yourself to give. You can give people like a look of what's going on around you. You can inform people that way in a way that writing for Twitter and let's be honest, like every mainstream publication in the world right now writes for twitter that is yeah there is no like i have yet to find a country on earth that is not directly hooked up their media to twitter so if you're wondering why journalism now is like so scattered and weird and confusing it's because they're writing for twitter hits they're writing for twitter clout newsletters are different they don't really connect to twitter i don't get any i think 
the most engagement I ever get on Twitter is like when someone screenshots something and was like, oh, he nailed it or whatever, right? But like, you're yeah. not writing for Twitter dunks. You're not writing for Twitter headlines. You're not writing so that other editors who sit on Twitter all day can share their piece that they commission from you, you know? And I think that changes the nature of everything. And I, and I think the reason why newsletters are popular is because readers have noticed that like it's fucking annoying to have to read something <laughs> that fits into the fabric of everything else on Twitter. And it never will be able to because there's just too much shit going on. And like most of it's not important. <laughs> like whatever. Um, and also like most of it's full of like Russian chaos agents at this point. So like it's all yeah. broken. I don't know. I, We're both Russian chaos agents. Yeah, dude. I've, I've been – the content lines is literally funded by the Kremlin. So – Yeah. Um, no, that's not true. It's, it's a shame. It's a shame they can't buy us better mics. Really, like you think of the Kremlin funding. <laughs> no, no. I mean, we're both DPRK tankies, so we just believe that the Kim <laughs> family are actual god, and um, that's 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 our political yeah. slant. But it's not so much belief as it's knowledge. <laughs> exactly. It's it's the it's the knowledge that the Kim family. Are. I, I can't yeah. keep this bit up. Um, <laughs> so I actually got really confused in the middle there. Do we agree with each other or do we disagree with each other? I think we sort of agree with each other. Uh, like we basically agree with, for different reasons. Like mm. I think that it is good because it is breaking down the idea of bubbles, and everyone can just like enjoy the thing that they like without having to deal with it in the context of messing with everyone else. You think that it's good because uh, everyone can enjoy the thing they want without it being pre-messed with by editors, filters, yada yada yada. And that's not to say that I'm anti-editor. I like editors. Um, I thank I, you as as an as an editor. Thank you. <laughs> I, I like it. I've been edited by you before. You're really mean, but you're good. Yeah, um, sure. <laughs> I like editors. Um, I just think like there is a okay. Here's here's my last big thing on this. Okay, and I think I think you've experienced this too. But in the early 2010s, blogs started to become big enough that they became their own media company. Uh, the most notable would be Gawker. Started as a series of blogs. Those blogs created a network. That ne network created a media company, et cetera, et cetera. That media company imploded. Yeah, it was great. Right. But, you know, it, it did this thing. And it was able to hire um, really interesting people across the board. Like, it had interesting writers. It had interesting editors who weren't your traditional newspaper editors or your traditional media insider editors they were just like people who wrote content and they were creating new forms of content and it was really exciting and it was really cool it was like cool to write thought catalog was a similar thing where it was like cool to write yeah and then those companies got bigger and either they imploded or they attempted to go mainstream and the easiest way to go mainstream is to recruit people from the mainstream so they would hire big names to come over and they would bring all their fucking toxic baggage from whatever newspaper they came from to these media companies. And then all of a sudden the rigidity and the structure and the like top down kind of like narrow mindedness of traditional media started to change how websites felt and they weren't interesting anymore. They weren't vibrant anymore. And worse than that, they were hooked up to Facebook for traffic and Twitter for clout. So they started to sound the same and they started to take themselves very seriously. And I think newsletters are a corrective on that because it's, writers and i think readers with their wallets saying wait a minute like i want interesting shit i want offbeat stuff i want things that make me happy or make me feel interesting or something i can talk about they don't want just like and i also think that it's not an accident that all of this rigidity in digital media was happening around tr the trump presidency where it's like everything got connected into one thing and all of a sudden it's like all the the same 19 websites writing the same 19 stories featuring the same 25 tweets about whatever the president did. 
And I think people are just sick of it. I think they're just completely tired of it. You know what it is? It's the old school band thing, like the music thing of 100 true fans. Yes, exactly. Whereas if you have 100 true fans who buy everything you make, you'll be fine. I think that's totally true. And I also think it's similar to bands where it's like, you know, U2 used to be a noise band. And then they became U2 as we know them. And people don't fucking listen to U2 anymore because they sound like every other fucking band. And like, I thought you, I thought you were going to do the but move to Philadelphia buy a loft thing. I mean, that's it too, right? Like your favorite rock band at some point was like a garage band. And then right after they were the garage band, they were doing club shows. And those were probably pretty popular with people who loved them. And then they watered their sound down to reach too many people. And now they fucking sound like Maroon 5 probably or Imagine Dragons or some shit. No one's seventh album's ever ever been better than the first, except Taylor Swift, who's maybe the Mountain Goats. Great. Maybe the Mountain Goats. That's true, but that's because they never got big. Yeah, that's true. I mean, that's the, Actually, that's the other thing. There's a there's a small number of bands who've done that who've just never. Who, who spent a long time like gigging Biffy Clyro another one actually yeah they had, like four or five albums they've been going for like 30 years or something and they're all young guys um but I've yeah, I've they, always wanted to be main stage legacy act at Warp Tour famous where it's like I have like 10,000 fans that are hardcore that have been listening to me for like 15 years and every tour is basically just an extended vacation with my family and I play like a two hour set. And by the second hour, I'm probably pretty drunk. And then that's it. I make new albums just to sell t-shirts and no one really cares. And like everyone doesn't mind. I have a lot of respect for bands that, that only go on tour and play their, their, the hits. Yeah. I, I had a, I had some free tickets to a Kings of Leon show like two or three years ago. Hmm. Uh, I went to a Kings of Leon show and, their new uh, must have been a few years, maybe it's five years ago. But the new album they they played, I think one song from, and they just went back to the early early albums. It's like, yeah, fair enough. That's good. Do that. Do that. And I think to bring to 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 bring this back to whatever this episode is about, I <laughs> I think it is exciting to me that writing is cool again for certain parts of the population. And I think yes, there'll be Nazis. Yes, there'll be bad white guy centrists yes there'll be annoying takes in the new york times but i think in a world of like increasing amounts of video production it is cool to me that people are reading words and they're paying for them and please subscribe to garbage day <laughs> <laughs> no but i, so I my mistake my mistake here was i did not start a newsletter before this episode well, i did but I've, it's over now so you could just rename it um no i i i one of the nicest things about doing Garbage Day first once a week and then three times a week was to connect with people in a way that I hadn't in a long time because Facebook is just ghosts. It's just numbers. There's no one there. And so, you know, it's cool. The people, the people who are there are Nazis. Yeah, or they're just like, you know, like scammers or they're fake accounts or whatever the fuck it is. Like, it's all weird. And at least with like a newsletter, you either read it, you don't read it. You can email me. Um, the only yeah. time I've ever gotten a mean email was I overextended. I did a, an issue on nine 11, which I said, it's the, uh, like three year anniversary of Ted Cruz liking a porn tweet on nine 11. And someone didn't find that very tasteful. And I understand that sure. was a little bit, that was a little much. Uh, <laughs> so Luke, now is the time where we end our show with a segment we do every week, which is called The Content You Consume to Stay Sane. 
Luke, what kind of content have you been consuming to stay sane this week? This week, I have been watching uh, one of the new documentaries on Netflix, uh, Trial 4. I have not have heard, you heard of this. Not at all. Okay, so it's a true crime, crime documentary. There's a young black guy. He is, shockingly, railroaded by the system. Wow. Uh, okay. Didn't do the crime. Eventually gets get, gets out. Sorry to spoil it, but you know, eventually it turns out he didn't do it, but it takes 20 years to find out. Wow. However, the fun part about this is that uh, it is in Boston. Um, <laughs> <laughs> meaning it has an awful lot of uh, Boston police officers in it oh, explaining boy. why why actually what they did wasn't wrong. Oh, boy. Oh. Now, he was accused of murdering a cop. Who's oh, the cop's God. Name? The cop's name is John Mulligan. Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> um, oh. Which, yeah, is a very Boston cop name. Oh, and My name's John Mulligan. Well, yeah, but the thing is, is there's a load of Boston cops defending him and explaining, and they're like, "Yeah, oh, he, 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 uh, he, was he a bit rough when he arrested people? Yeah, he was a bit rough. Was uh, this is a New York? I think. No, no, uh, that was actually pretty Boston. good. That wasn't bad. That wasn't bad. <laughs> Yo, like, yeah. uh, did he, did he, did you know, did he rough people from time to time? Did he like, you know, plant drugs on black people? Yeah, of course. But like, did he? Oh, the kiss was. He's like, yeah, no, he he tried he tried to arrest a lot of he tried to get people. Like, yeah, he he liked women. Some women were a bit young. It's fine, but he was a good guy, and it was Yo, like, like. Yo, sorry. Did, did like the day before like our quotas, like you go down to like, you know, like uh Malden and just like randomly arrest people for no fucking reason? Like, yeah, of course. Like everyone does that though. It's sick. So, so the eventual the eventual story of this was was that he was murdered outside of Walgreens in a Walgreens parking lot at two AM. Okay. Uh he was discovered with his uh trousers around his ankles. Oh. And they decided, Oh no, no, this this black guy just randomly shot him. Uh it turned out that what seems to have happened was that one of the many 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 women that he kept on call in order to service him had come down and one of their associates the guy's name was one-eyed mr c okay yeah that's that sounds like a normal boston nickname (laughs) yeah uh no it turned out he'd shot him while his associate girlfriend whatever you want to call it was was servicing this guy in his car outside of walgreens wow and then, the, yeah, then the cops covered up. And it was just like loads of almost just hysterically corrupt stuff. It's it's kind It was kind of amazing. So there's, um, at one moment, they find a phone in the car. After the car's been searched by forensics, like everything's been pulled out. They found like, they delineated like uh, a bottle cap, a hairpin, a Duncan's receipt. Oh, for God's sakes. <laughs> yeah, there's like multiple Duncan's receipts involved. And then, and then like 12 hours later, one of the cops goes like, hey, Maybe, maybe, maybe there's a phone in the car. And then goes to the car and goes like, "You missed the phone. It was in the glove box." And it's like, "Oh God, guys, come on, Boston's so, finest, baby." Yeah, just hysterically corrupt, and and all these multiple cops being like, "I just, you know, look, everyone he worked with, they, they, they've got the multiple people he worked with got found out to be corrupt and like done for being corrupt and robbing people, robbing drug dealers for money." Um, wow. And yeah, and then it turns out that that. They were like, no, I just, I don't buy it. I don't buy it. He wasn't corrupt. He was a good guy. He was a good guy. <laughs> he was a good guy. He's a good kid. Look, he's a good kid. Clearly, he was corrupt. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's worth watching. It's, it's fun. It is fascinating, though, it, because they started filming clearly like mid 2017. Um, mm-hmm. Basically, as he got out of prison, because he had three trials, the third of which, the first two were, were, were mistrials. This third one got sent to prison. And they eventually got it overturned in early 2017, at which point they were they were filming around then. And then in 2018, 
they were clearly they were clearly gearing up to film him during his fourth trial, right. and then the the DA uh, decided they actually didn't have enough evidence to prosecute him, so it, it, it fades out quite quickly. Oh wow! Okay, um, well at least that's yeah. a good that's a good good ending. Yeah, it's a, it's a good thing, but it was it was just it's just quite funny to watch them. They're clearly like, oh no, we know this is going to be an amazing documentary, and they now turned it into eight part documentaries. Like, guys, this was probably like four. Oh, yeah. You commissioned for eight because you thought it was going to be a trial, and now you filled up an eight part documentary with about three and a half episodes worth of stuff. You hate to see it. <laughs> yeah, but you know, there's more time for racist Boston cops to explain how they weren't racist that's what the world needs more of is racist boston cops talking about how they're totally fine like they're just you know the normal like it's all fucking fine it's fine so what content have you been continuing to stay saying well um i have actually watched some things this week um i have also been eating a lot of delicious food but i've been watching a spanish netflix show called the barrier and it is extremely spanish um Stop me if this sounds familiar. A virus uh, <laughs> impacts a large <laughs> chunk of the earth, and Spain decides to implement a fascist government, uh, and then it takes place 25 years after the rise of this like Spanish fascist state, where rich people live in basically like normal 2020 style life, and poor people like live in like a favela. Um, but it's very Spanish, which means like co- people are constantly having sex with each other. And it's like very like telenovela messy while also trying to do like a Hunger Games thing. It's like it's like dystopia telenovela. Yeah, it's I mean, it's kind of it's fun. And like they're having a lot of fun with like the costumes because it's like very like like all the poor people kind of dress like 1940s, like like skull caps and stuff and like scarves and revolutionary looks. And then like all the rich people dress like really glamorous hunger games villains kind of thing um but it's also interesting if you're if you're familiar with like spanish fascism and the history of fascism or or dystopias yeah well so but they do like they do they're doing a lot of like satire on like francoist stuff Um, okay there's like a song that's like very similar to like a real spanish song uh from the fascist era like they're doing interesting things uh, and it's also like an interesting look at like how uh, like pandemic in this one, it's a norovirus, but how pandemics fuel authoritarianism while also just being like yeah. steamy and sexy and like, you know, and v- very like <laughs> thick Madrid accents. So it's like, gracias, por favor, you know, like kind of like it's very uh, it's entertaining. It's nice. All the best pandemics are sexy. I think that's the only problem with our current pandemic is that we didn't work to make it sexy enough. Yeah, we, we needed we needed. I know. I, I'm, I've lost that one. <laughs> the horniest, the horniest we got in America was like that brief week where everyone was super into the Cuomo brothers, and that was like deeply embarrassing. And then everyone got super horny for that khaki pants guy on CNN the other day during the election. I feel like that's like the main problem is that Americans just like don't know how to be well, horny. John King? No, uh, the other guy, Kalap, Kalapi, 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 Konaki, Steve Konaki. Yeah. Like oh he's not he's not CNN he's an MSNBC oh whatever but that's the problem is like Americans don't know how to be horny properly they get horny for like weird normal looking men I don't I don't like it I mean you're, you're talking to Britain here like you guys get horny in I think an interesting way have you heard of Benedict Cumberbatch <laughs> I don't think British people find him attractive I think it's Americans that find him attractive Should you know what you're right there I think he looks like that photograph of that cat that ate a bee. He does. He does look like that. <laughs> I'll put that in the show notes this week for you guys to check out. There is this cat that got stung by a bee from the inside of its mouth and it looks just like Benedict Cumberbatch. Okay, wait. So some administrative things. 
everyone's favorite part of the show. Uh, check out our Patreon. Where will Ryan be this week? <laughs> our Patreon is uh, patreon.com slash thecontentminds. And I have launched a Twitter account for us, twitter.com slash thecontentminds. Uh, people were using a hashtag, and I was like, fuck it, we should just do it. Um, they'll I, be... I, I should have I should have added it in under my viral tweet about newsletters this week. Yeah, just add it in under any of your viral tweets. We need people on there. Come on, we want to be famous. I just linked the show. I just linked the show. Well, um, ch- definitely check out the Twitter. Tweeted us with it. Um, I'll be sharing episode clips, I think, with it starting pretty soon. Um, it's just a good way to keep up with the show, I guess. Um, and uh, next week, we're doing Justice League on our Patreon for uh, oh, our subscribers. Oh. It's been building to this. The cinematic event of all time um or whatever yeah man this this you know this universe has been been less fun than i was i was hoping i actually have been surprised by how little fun you're having with this i feel like i'm actually hurting you at a certain point yeah i mean i'm just holding on for shazam i can't wait for shazam i'm also excited to like see where this show takes us after we finish with dc movies like we have to figure out what we're doing next that's true and as always if you want to derail our journey into the dc universe uh just shoot us a message and we will reignite any argument you have please any movie just pick a movie we'll watch <laughs> anything anything just you want delay just doesn't have to be a movie we could talk about uh i don't know i've never seen the sopranos i guess we could talk about whether or not i don't know <laughs> you want to watch all of sopranos by next wednesday uh let's go for it let's give it a shot <laughs> some of us have jobs uh hey my job is making content for you beautiful people listening to us speaking of which if you're interested and you don't already, subscribe to Garbage Day. Subscribe to Garbage Day. Um, it's a newsletter. It's on Substack. And when Luke decides to quit traditional media and start his newsletter, you should follow him there too. Yeah. <laughs> what's your centrist? What's your centrist newsletter going to be called? Um, I don't know. The 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 widening gyre. The widening gyre. Yeah. What's a gyre? The 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 poem. What? Gyre? J-I-R-E? The widening gyre. Oh my god, okay. Turning and turning in the widening gyre, the falcon can heal the fal- falconer. Things fall apart, the center cannot hold. The Yeats poem. G-Y-R-E. Gyre. Oh, that was, uh, yeah, gyre, yeah. By W.B. Yeats. Yes. What's it about? The second coming. Of Jesus? Yeah. Hmm. Turning and turning in the widening jar, the falcon can hear the falconer. Things fall apart, the center cannot hold. That's where the center cannot hold comes from. Where where is that from? Who says that? Yeats. No, no, but like, who says that now? Many people. I've never heard that before. Ah, I just. (laughs) (laughs) The center cannot hold is a famous phrase. Well. I feel like it's doing a pretty good job now of holding. <laughs> <laughs>